0: Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, Elizabeth's just gone out and I was going to thank her for the invitation, but never mind. I'm sure she, uh, she knows that I'm grateful uh, to have the opportunity to be with you today. Um, well, she's right that uh, it was one summer's day a few years ago uh, that I went on my usual weekly supermarket shop and saw the god delusion on the shelves. I don't normally buy books in the supermarket, but it was quite surprising to me that it was there, actually. I mean, it's normally just cookbooks and the old novel, isn't it, or something. Uh, But anyway, uh, and I bought it, and I sat in the deck chair in the garden afterwards uh, reading it, and uh, my husband says he could see smoke (laughs) (laughs) arising, but um, I was uh, cross about it, because I felt it was uh, full of misrepresentation and inaccuracy and empty tri- diatribe, especially when uh, Dawkins got to the Bible, and that's really what inspired me then to uh, to write the book uh, about um, the, the Old Testament. It sort of has a kind of double purpose. It's both an introductory guide to the Old Testament, but it, it's also taking the Uh, sort of starting point from the Dawkins critique. Uh, So um, I want to talk first about that Dawkins critique and to look at a couple of the passages that he singled out as being particularly difficult um, because I think that will then show you how the Old Testament can be a very difficult text to engage with and which is where the sort of issue arises in the first place. But then, uh, as Elizabeth said, I will uh, move on perhaps to some slightly more palatable bits in part two. Um, So I really wrote this because I felt that no one else had written an apology specifically for the Old Testament uh, in relation to the Dawkins critique. I mean, other people uh, have written against new atheism, Uh, one thinks of people like Alastair McGrath, Keith Ward and, and others, but um, it was more on the sort of biblical side, which of course is my own specialism. Uh, so let's begin with one of Dawkins' more salacious passages. Uh, that's on, the first one on the handout. The God of the Old Testament is, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist infanticidal genocidal or pestilential megalomaniac sadomasochistic capriciously malevolent bully well uh, that's a bit of a character assassination <laughs> um, so the old testament has had a bad press maybe um, from the new atheists it's not the first time it's happened it's happened across history and perhaps the most A notorious person who attacked the Old Testament was Marcion, way back uh, uh, in the early centuries of the Christian era. But anyway, back to Dawkins. Uh, First of all, Dawkins suggests that the Old Testament is a work of fiction rather than of holy writ. And second, he draws out all the bad characteristics, it seems, of any person he can think of and applies them wholesale to God. It's interesting, actually, that Dawkins has slightly more pleasant things to say about the God of the New Testament. He says, compared to the cruel ogre of the Old Testament God, uh, Jesus is a huge improvement. The New Testament, he says, undoes the damage and makes it all right, doesn't it? He asks sarcastically, of course. So what I want to be clear about is that in, in his book, Dawkins is really talking about ethics. He thinks that the ethics of Jesus is more palatable than the ethics of the God of the Old Testament. So ethics is his starting point, and it's his main criteria for judging the two gods to be so different. This raises first of all the question whether there's any any continuity between the gods of the Old Testament and New, and why that might matter. And second, the further question of how Christians uh, can read the Old Testament in a nurturing way uh, if a very different kind of God seems to lurk in its pages. So the questioning of the place of the Old Testament uh, both in Christian life and thought and within the canon of the Bible is an old chestnut. The characterization of very different gods as portrayed by the two Testaments does take us back to Marcion that famous first critic of the value of the Old Testament for Christians. Uh, He took a radical stance in sweeping away the old scriptures to make way for the new, and even more radically focusing on St. Paul and the Gospel of Luke alone for the Christian message. So he didn't even like the other three Gospels. In fact, we're not sure that he actually knew them, because at those times, different communities apparently had different Gospels that they focused upon Um, so we're speaking here uh, in the time before the Canon of the New Testament would have been fixed individual Gospels were known and popular in certain areas but the writings of St. Paul were where the real newness of the Christian message lay for Marcion in the gospel to the Gentiles and the consequent leaving behind of the Jewish heritage so this led him to reject the Old Testament and its God And he described the Old Testament God as the demiurge, a different God, the creator and redeemer of the Jews. And he didn't think that that God had any place in Christian proclamation. He even uh, excised from the Gospel of Luke lots of passages which talk about prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. He took those out. Uh, as not being uh, relevant. So he took out the passages that saw Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament and of the promises made by the Old Testament prophets. So he disliked the Old Testament God almost as much as Dawkins, uh, it seems, does, but of course coming from a rather different angle. So clearly the Old Testament with the God it portrays is easily open to attack, And, of course, as with most accusations, however exaggerated, there is some truth in them. Evidence abounds in the Old Testament of God's less savoury characteristics. But it is interesting um, that what Dawkins gives us in his book is very much a selection of certain texts. Uh, He cherry-picks particularly bad ones, I mean particularly difficult texts, uh, we might say, well, I'm going to, particularly in part two, cherry-pick nice bits. You know, we, we all cherry-pick. Um, in some ways, when we read the Old Testament in church, it's a bit of a cherry-pick because it's often in line with the New Testament or part of uh, a series of lectionary readings. So all the time we're selecting passages. And in a way, I don't think that one has to uh, give an apology for that. Uh, we all do that when we want to back up our arguments. We might select material. Um, so, But he certainly does it when he's looking for the bad bits, because he only focuses on some of the narrative texts of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament, and in the historical books, uh, the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Large swathes of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, and particularly the writings, are completely left out, out of account in his critique. And of course it is the Books of the Prophets to which Christians turned for inspiration um, from the Old Testament when they were thinking about Jesus. They turned there for the prophecies of the coming, the life and significance of Jesus. Um, And the New Testament, especially the Gospel of Matthew, is a witness to the way they viewed prophecy and fulfilment in the person of Jesus. Uh, So, you know, when one reads the Gospels, one finds that emphasis on the fulfillment of prophecy uh, going right through them, actually. But surely the writings deserve a mention, too. That um, third section, so to speak, of the Hebrew Bible, um, the Psalms are a key book within the writings that have long been cherished in Christian liturgy and thought, and are also part of the fulfillment in Christ motif meant to to be displayed in the New Testament. Uh, There's in the uh, writings, that's where the wisdom literature is, which is my own particular research interest, and in that literature, which is Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes primarily, uh, there's a huge interest in ethics, and in good living, and in the nature of suffering, and. The meaning of life and all sorts. So there's a great rich resource uh, in the Old Testament that Dawkins could have drawn on but of course he didn't want to particularly because he was wanting to look for the nasty bits. So I'm seeking to counter these Dawkinsite or Marcionite accusations about God in the Old Testament and I can't entirely exonerate a God who does at time behave in an opposite manner to expectation But I do seek to understand the context of God's actions and and obviously the actions of the human beings of the time. And I do think a big part of understanding the Old Testament is understanding our cultural difference and distance from that period. Um, And and even if we don't want to condone some of the things that happened then, by doing that contextual analysis we can at least understand where they were coming from. So I try, in my book, to draw out the other side of the coin when it comes to texts in the Old Testament, and indicate the diversity and richness of the textual offering that the Old Testament gives. Uh, So Dawkins' starting point in his chapter on the good book and the changing moral zeitgeist, as it's called, is the use of the Old Testament as a source of morality. And of course, there is a question as to whether this is why people read the Old Testament. One might perhaps think about the Ten Commandments. We may be looking at that as a source of morality. Um, We may look at certain stories in terms of role models, particular characters perhaps. Uh, We may want to emulate God as a role model, um, but that's often not the only reason that we read the Old Testament. Uh, Dawkins goes on to find stories in the Old Testament that he finds morally appalling to show that the role model argument quickly finds God seriously lacking. So he finds examples in the Pentateuch. First of all, uh, Noah and the wholesale destruction caused by the flood in Genesis 7-9. We have the story of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 19. We have Abraham passing off his wife as his sister, um, not once but twice, and then Isaac does it as well, Uh, so that's, uh, I've put uh, Genesis question mark here, I obviously forgot which text it was in and never filled it in. There you are, even the Old Testament scholars can't always remember where they are. And Abraham and the near slaughter of Isaac, of course, in Genesis 22, Exodus 32, with the slaughter of 3,000 after the Golden Calf incident. Moses and the attack on the Midianites in Numbers 31. And the invasion, as he calls it, of the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 20. Then he turns to the historical books of Joshua and Judges, and there he finds Joshua 6, the attack on Jericho, Judges 11, Jephthah's daughter, and Judges 19, The Levites' concubine. Well I cover all these texts in my book but of course I haven't got time to go into any of those uh, in great depth, or not many of them anyway. Because many of these stories are so raw and unpalatable to modern sensibilities, Dawkins is easily able to jibe and mock with no real understanding of the context in which the stories arose. He accuses the God of the Old Testament of sexual jealousy of the worst kind with the indictment of the people for their going after other gods. He writes, the tragic farce of God's maniacal jealousy against alternative gods recurs continually throughout the Old Testament. Dawkins asks, Do these people who hold up the Bible as an inspiration to moral rectitude have the slightest notion of what is actually written in it? Again, he's establishing his point that modern morality and the Old Testament are poles apart, a fact that no one is actually challenging. The issue here is whether the Old Testament has anything to teach us. On the question of morality or otherwise, or whether it is simply to be binned with the rest of the Christian faith as Dawkins would have us do. Uh, The laws of the Old Testament, which were clearly designed for a very different context, are then held up for ridicule by him. Why the death penalty for offences that seem to us to be minor, he asks. He points out that when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus defined himself against such laws as the one about Sabbath keeping, He says, Jesus was not content to derive his ethics from the scriptures of his upbringing. He explicitly departed from them. So Dawkins there even uses Jesus in his argument against the morality of the Old Testament, the sort of suggestion that Jesus thought the Old Testament needed updating too. So he kind of uh, adjusted some of the um, legal requirements. A Christian too might appeal use appeal to the morality of Jesus as an argument against following the morality of the Old Testament. But in a way, we're not really being asked as Christians to do that, to make a distinct choice between one model of morality and another. What I'm calling for here is at least an understanding of the cultural context of that morality, and a fair evaluation of the nature of the stories and other texts that we find in the Old Testament. So rather than kind of wholesale rejection on moral grounds of a rather different text to the New Testament, uh, if we seek to try to understand it and perhaps see some of its riches as well as its problems, uh, we may be in a better place. So to sum up, Dawkins in little more than half a chapter of his book actually, it's only a short part, Uh, devoted to the Old Testament, grounds his discussion primarily in the context of how scripture might be a source of morals or rules for living, either in terms of laws such as the Ten Commandments or of role models that devotees might follow. Both channels, one and two, he terms obnoxious to any civilised modern person, particularly in the light of the fact that the Bible, as he says, is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, quote, unquote. But unfortunately, it is this same weird volume that religious zealots hold up to us as the inerrant source of our morals and rules for living. That's another quote, of course, from him. And I think his word zealots in that quote is quite telling, because Dawkins gives us the impression that all religious people of any persuasion are extremists, who take the Bible literally and reject all scientific explanations for things like natural disasters that occur in the belief that they are payback for human misdemeanors. He comments on the human egocentricity that places human concerns at the centre. He asks, why should a divine being with creation and eternity on his mind care a fig for petty human malefactions. So Dawkins' main point in his half-chapter is to say not that we shouldn't get our morals from Scripture, but that in fact, when we look at Scripture closely, we find that we don't anyway. And I agree with him on that, that we don't actually directly extrapolate our modern morality uh, from the pages of the Old Testament, nor from his selection of texts. Uh, but I wouldn't go as far to say as to say uh, that there's no morality in Scripture at all. Dawkins continues to argue that neither is God a good role model, nor are the, relevant, uh, the laws relevant to today, So we have no need of this weird and outdated set of textually unreliable and confused documents called the Old Testament. And he raises there a point about the the nature of the Old Testament. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not one book with a beginning and an end. It's a whole series of books, and they're all of a very different nature. It's a collection of books, and it is very diverse. Uh, There are repetitions and redactions and editorial pieces and bits that don't seem to go together very well. Uh, I was talking uh, in a, a lecture about Jeremiah, and I found rather a good quote from someone who said that if the book of Jeremiah had been handed into any publisher nowadays it would have been <laughs> returned with a rejection slip in no uncertain terms, because it's quite a lengthy, repetitive and chronologically confused document. So these uh, are ancient texts which came together in different ways uh, to the ways that we're used to with modern literature. Um, Anyway, I mean, that's why he calls it an unreliable and confused set of documents. His claim is that the good book gives us no nourishment, moral or otherwise. My counter-argument is to show that the Old Testament is very diverse and that such sweepingly general comments cannot be fairly applied to its contents. It has an enduring appeal, in my view, for those who engage seriously with it, and those who seek to understand its cultural context, and for those who wish to explore its variety and appreciate the development of its ideas over the many centuries before it reached its final form. Because this is another aspect of the Old Testament. It is a living work. It was composed over thousands of years. An older material was reinterpreted in new situations throughout that period, so we find this is why we find quite a lot of edits, editorial and redactional parts, where people were adding their two pennyworth, in a sense, to those scriptures. And it wasn't till the work was canonised and somebody said, "Stop, there's going to be no more additions," uh, that, that actually, you know, became a fixed text. Because until that point. Um, Learned scribes and, um, and others with the authority to do so were adding to its pages all the time. Um, so uh, it can be our friend in my view uh, rather than our foe as perhaps uh, Dawkins sees it.